Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about confronting threats. Whether it's actual physical danger or a threat to your career, how do we react in those moments? I'll tell you how I did once. A few years ago, I was ice skating here in New York around Christmas time, and this kid skates into me really hard. And I just have this like reflexive reaction before I even have the chance to think about it. I find myself reaching out to smack him in the head. <laughs> but I catch myself just in time, so I just sort of pretended like I was straightening his hat, which is a totally normal thing to do to a stranger on an ice rink, right? Nobody bought it, of course. My boyfriend was like, uh, you definitely just almost hit that kid. <laughs> Anyway, Ice Skating Kid, if you're out there, I'm sorry. I did not mean to menace you. I was having a fight-or-flight moment. I apologize. And I can promise you all that the storytellers in today's episode react to much more dire threats with a lot more maturity and composure. So our first story today is from Kim Cobb. It was recorded in December 2017 at BB's Stage Door Canteen at our show in partnership with the American Geophysical Union. The theme that night was geoscience. It started as a, as a low and distant rumble, and my mind raced to find the, what was going on, the origin of the noise. Was it an airplane? No, we were far, far, far too deep in the jungle for that. Was it a truck? No. Now it was some coming, coming from inside the mountain. I was a baby postdoc at the time. I just started my new job in the last couple of months, uh, focused on reconstructing climate from caves to lagmites deep in the jungles of Borneo. Scientifically, I was totally psyched. I was thrilled at the opportunity to fill a really important data gap in the history of climate on our planet Earth from a remarkably data poor region. And personally, I couldn't be more excited at the opportunity to throw myself into the tropical jungle and, and duke it out with the rainforest. I'd honed some pretty serious field skills as a graduate student in the deep tropics already, so I was ready. But 
as it happens, Mother Nature doesn't let go of her best kept secrets very easily. And so it happened that I was found myself on a 72-hour plane to the middle of the jungle where I took an even smaller plane and smaller plane and smaller plane, smaller plane, four planes later, I'm landing on a grass field on a small plane with 10 seats on it and we're met by a caravan of eight SUVs that took us eight hours over logging roads in the interior of Borneo (laughs) and dropped our team and our gear off. At base camp was nothing more than a couple rusty tin sheets held up by rotting beams of trees. So there I was, I would spend the next three weeks literally in the middle of the jungle with 20 other men. Yeah. 19 of those people were perfect strangers. One of them was my boss. We'd hired six American cavers to help us through this adventure. Uh, These are guys who had done this many, many, many times. Uh, They knew every crack and crevice of those caves. They were the only people in the world to push certain leads in those caves back into the depths. And so they were nimble and agile and excited and fast. And I was terrified and slow and clueless and useless. (laughs) Yeah, we, we got off to a great start. And so every day, we trek out in the morning in our clean-ish clothes, and we would uh, hike through the jungle about uh, for a couple hours to traverse something that was no more than 400 meters or so, and we'd have to hack our way through the jungle, our Malaysian guides wielding the machetes in front of us while the rest of us tried to pick our way through, scanning each other's legs and arms for leeches. It was definitely something. And the cave entrances were not easy to find. (laughs) The jungle had reclaimed all of the old trails that they had used just a couple years before. And the entrances themselves were tiny holes stuck into the cliffs behind the wall of vegetation, completely invisible until it hit you in the face, basically. And so most of the cave entrances we found right away, within a matter of half a day, a day of sweat and labor. But one cave eluded us. Its name was Mojo Cave. It eluded us for days, actually. It was backbreaking work, cutting our way through the jungle to get to a wall of cliff over and over again. And it was heartbreaking for our team. And as they got ground down, there was open rumblings from them. Maybe we just don't need this particular cave, Kim. Maybe we can just call this one a day, Kim. And uh, I became more and more resolved. I was going to get to Mojo if it killed me. And the guys actually ponied up, really went above and beyond the call of duty. One of them even risked their life one day, uh, falling down the cliff only to reach up and grab a root and save himself and come back white-knuckled and shaking and, and ready to go back and do it again. And I said, that's it for the day, folks. So we limped back to camp and, and had some scotch and muttered, oh, bad mojo. <laughs> yeah, ha ha, bad mojo. Um, and so we, we went and back and back and back, took us another couple days, but we found that entrance. Ah. 
I was so excited. I was bouncing through the cave like I was on the moon. I had no gravity. We were doing our science, which meant walking six feet, stopping for half an hour, and collecting waters and mud and rocks. And everybody else sat around staring at me like, when is this possibly going to end? And so we scienced for the day. And then we, uh, we ended our cave in record time. And we got back out to the entrance and took off our helmets. And we got ready to traverse back through the jungle on just a, a, what was to be, of course, a, a very, very lovely day in my scientific life, having conquered that mountain. The last thing I remember before it happened was my friend posing with his mojo energy bar and a wide smile on his face. And you see, I was just as happy. See, my joy was not being in the cave. My joy was getting out of the cave at the end of the day. I lived another day. For me, the darkness was the danger and the light was the safety. It was all about to turn the tables in about an instant. So it began as this low, low, low rumble. In two or three seconds, it was a lot louder. In two or three more seconds, the ground was shaking beneath our feet. Our eyes were passing back and forth in confusion to each other. Nobody had an answer. I was in full fight or flight mode as my brain raced through the thousand-ish scenarios that could be occurring, extraterrestrial and terrestrial alike. And uh, at that point, I was, I was basically just paralyzed. We were all paralyzed. Suddenly, my Malaysian cave guide yelled, Rock fall! And he started running towards us with his arms outstretched frantically as if to sweep us up in his arms as he pushed us to safety. And we turned and we scrambled back across the entrance boulders as fast as we could, just scrambling over each other over rocks, desperate as the first baby rocks pinged across the entrance. Boing, boing. We were scrambling back and forth and we turned just in time to see a thick wall of debris obscure the entire entrance to the cave. It was deafeningly loud. These huge boulders the size of houses were pinging across the entrance, crashing into the cave. This dust came enveloped right over our heads. And for me, fight or flight went to fear, definitely, but, but resignation and awe. It was like a front row to geology on speed, <laughs> right? I just was mesmerized at this situation. Of course, in the back of my mind, I knew that anything could happen. The cave entrance could be closed. The cave itself could squish us like a pancake. Um, these became kind of abstract thoughts as I was in this situation. And I remember kind of the only coherent thought I could muster was that if I did die, I hoped my family knew that I died doing what I loved in, in just outright awe of Mother Nature and grateful for all the experiences that accumulated and that I would never have it any other way. And of course, eventually, after a minute or two, it ended just as it started. A couple little rocks pinging across the entrance. We sat there in stunned silence until somebody shouted an expletive, 
But there was no time for post-processing at that point. It was decision time. What do we do? Do we stay in the cave, kind of balancing our odds of a recurring rockfall, um, or do we go and risk another rockfall outside the cave in the debris field that we would have to traverse? And so we a couple geologists. We sat down for a couple minutes and, and weighed these things based on pure anecdotal experience and no data at all. We came to a complete stalemate, shocker. And we turned to the guy who had saved our lives, and we said, what should we do? And he said, you go. And I said, why? And he said, because if you stay any longer, you may never leave. <laughs> I said, yes. And so wordlessly, we put back on our helmets, and we started leaving the cave through the thickest cloud of dust, the noxious barrier to daylight and safety but there was more danger on the other side. When we got out there, the landscape was unrecognizable. The mountainside had been wiped clean like a slate. All the trees had been cut down. We're looking at a debris field about 300 meters across, the dust still hanging over it, tree roots jutting into the air all over. And our route to safety was right across that debris field. We had no choice. Wordlessly, we picked our way across the loose debris field, and I silently marked the place that was the point of no return. If a rockfall came at that point, we were toast. We didn't talk on the way back to camp that day, but when we got there, there was an outpouring of emotional retellings. Oh my God, what did you think? And I thought we were gonna die, and I was sure, and we were gonna be okay. Some guys said, we was gonna be fine. <laughs> Our Malaysian guides sat there smiling silently. And there may have been some extra scotch consumed that evening. And there may or may not have been an un, uh, unsolicited uh, phone call to my husband over the satellite phone that my advisor asked me about later. And the next day, we took the day off. And we took the time to discuss whether it was safe to go on, whether we had our wherewithal physically and emotionally to go back into the jungle, into the caves again. And the next day, we just wordlessly geared up and go back out to the jungle without even discussing it. The pull of the jungle, the pull of the caves, the pull of its secrets proved too much, even after all of that. And the expedition would be the first of 10 for me. I've been back many times. And the rocks we collected on that expedition form the basis for 500,000 plus years of climate history from one of the most data poor regions on our planet. Over 12 publications later, many, many grants and PhDs and postdocs, etc. It has been the joy of my life. But the gift of Mojo is much, much, much more than those grants and publications and all of those data points that I've analyzed. You see, I earned some serious science Mojo that day. Right? And so when I, when, what I learned that day is that when I forget how important humility is in our survival, nature will remind me. I learned that when I am clueless and afraid, my friends will save me with their wisdom and their life experience. I learned that when I must act in the face of uncertainty and profound danger, I can and I will muster the courage. So to all of those that would attack climate scientists 
and the data sets that underlie our science. To all those who think that we don't have the chops for the political blood sport surrounding the future of our planet, I say, bring it. Kim Cobb. Kim is a researcher who uses corals and cave stalagmites to probe the mechanisms of past, present, and future climate change. In support of her research, she has sailed on multiple oceanographic cruises to the deep tropics and led caving expeditions to the rainforest of Borneo. Kim has received numerous awards for her research, most notably an NSF Career Award in 2007. And as a mother to four, she is a strong advocate for women in science. So before we move on to the next story, I, I hope you all will hear me out for just a few minutes. As I've mentioned over the last few weeks, the Story Collider is holding its first ever fundraising event on May 1st in celebration of our 8th anniversary. And as I've told you all repeatedly over the last few weeks, it will be an amazing time. That's just a fact. More than that, though, this is a really crucial event for us. We're hoping that we're able to use this event to raise money to bring our shows to new places, story-rich places, underprivileged areas, towns where we think we can find new and different voices that maybe aren't heard as much as they could be. And it's so important for us to continue to find and elevate these voices, first because we want to produce an interesting and dynamic show, right? But also for a bigger reason. And one of the best days that I've had working for Story Collider was the day that me and my co-director, Liz Neely, got an email from a scientist named Jeff Shinsky. And he said that he'd published a study where he'd had community college students listen to Story Collider stories and other stories as part of their curriculum. And the result was that these students reported a greater interest in science, made better grades in the class, used different words to describe who can be a scientist, and could see more of a place for themselves in science. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty incredible. Because what that tells me is that stories have the power to transform the way we think about science and who it belongs to. How amazing is that? So we want to keep finding these voices that haven't been heard. We want to keep finding these untold stories behind science. Because to me, and I'm going to get a little emotional here, so get ready for it. To me, this is more than a job. This is an opportunity to create an oral history of science in our time, to document the challenges scientists face, to show how people who aren't scientists relate to science and how it's a part of our lives, to give a glimpse into the process of science and what it means to undertake that, the sacrifices that are made and the lives that are put on hold for the sake of knowledge and discovery and truth. And I mean, yeah, we have a lot of stories that are about things like people messing up their science projects and getting action figures stuck in their butts and stuff like that. But, you know, that's all part of it, isn't it? So if this undertaking resonates with you like it does with me, please consider buying a ticket to this fundraiser and supporting our mission. If you do, I can promise you that your contribution will be honored and that I will personally get you a drink on May 1st because all food and beverage is included in the ticket. So thank you for listening to me ramble. I'll shut up now and share with you our second story. Our second story today is from Lyle Tomlinson. It was recorded in December 2017 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was power. So it happened about two years after I graduated from college. 
I was trying to get into a neuroscience PhD program, so I was checking off all the boxes on the competitive candidate checklist. So I was working in a lab, I was learning new techniques, and I was doing experiments to try and publish a research paper, which is basically the currency of academic science. And so as I was doing this, I was getting really invested in science. I really wanted to sort of get into a bunch of different places, but really the only place I was actually interested in was the institution that I was currently working at. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to get there was because I really liked the environment. But there was a bit of a problem. I had submitted an application months ago, and it was taking a long time to hear back from them. But Honestly, like I wasn't really worried because I had a great reputation in two of the labs that I was in. So Dr. Janice's lab where I'd done a summer project with another undergrad um, and I was doing really well there. And then the lab that I was currently working in at the time, Dr. Balboa's lab, I was also getting a great reputation. I was working hard. I was doing like amazing things in that lab. So that was fine. Um, on top of that, I also had done really well in a biochemistry program or a biochemistry class that they give to their first year students in that same program. And then lastly, my uh, boss, mentor, whatever you want to call him, Dr. Balboa, actually had money for me to work for all the five years that I would be in the program. So I was pretty confident like this would happen. Um, so basically, um, one of the issues that sort of came up was that as I was trying to get into the program, again, as you know, like I hadn't heard back, um, I had, I was, I was, even though I hadn't heard back, I was still really obsessed with getting in. And one of the other reasons why I was obsessed with getting in was because I was really close with my mentor, Dr. Balboa. Now, just so you know, he was the kind of boss who would call me in after shootings of unarmed black men and ask me how I was doing and how I was feeling. And it's because he really cared. He was really good at sort of picking up on that global anxiety and that anger that happens after situations like this in the African-American community. And I think that one of the reasons why he was sort of particularly good at this was because being a gay man in science, he had his own sort of unjust situations and experiences to draw from. And so just for example, like he was very bold in talking about these things. And so we, we shared a deep connection on that. And so he would go out to different audiences and speak about his lab and like the interest that the lab was forwarding. And he was not ashamed in saying that um, the basis of his lab's research was actually the brainchild of his husband. And depending on what audience we were in, you might hear the crowd get a little quieter when he said the word husband. And so he would talk to me about this, and we would share experiences back and forth. And because we shared such a close bond, I definitely wanted to stay in that lab. And so one day, I was walking into the lab, totally normal day, um, and I opened the door to the corridor that the lab is in. And just for context, um, the lab is housed in a corridor, but it's all the way down at the end, and there are like two or three other labs in that same corridor. So I'm opening the door to the lab, and then all of a sudden I hear Dr. Balboa from all the way down there saying, what the fuck is this? How can they believe this shit? This is ridiculous. Honestly, I wasn't really all that surprised because he cursed a lot in lab. Um, <laughs> But one of the reasons why I knew that this was actually sort of uncharted territory was because he was doing this with the door open. He usually had the peace of mind to close the door when he was upset about some careless or costly mistake that had been made in the lab. But at this point, the door was wide open. Everyone in the corridor could hear it. 
but he and I were close. So I wasn't really afraid of walking into the lab and, and talking to him. Because one thing, I, I wanted to know what was up. And the other thing is I wanted to see if I could make him feel better. So we have this like normal like caustic back and forth with jokes. So like I walk into his lab and I'm like, so you finally found out science wasn't going to make you a millionaire. <laughs> no response. And then so I constantly like throw out these one-liners that I would humbly describe as comedic gold. And he was not amused. Not at all. And so eventually I just get to the point and I'm like, so what's up? And he proceeds to say something that for the rest of the day I would think is a joke. So he says to me, they think you stole cocaine. And I promise you, I promise you the first thing I did was I laughed. Because to me that is such a ridiculous statement. Like, I am the guy who is staying in lab on the weekends and not going out just because I want to finish the project. I'm the kind of guy who has this borderline unhealthy obsession with anime. I am also the guy, (laughs) sorry to get too personal. Um, (laughs) I'm also the guy who's playing Dungeons and Dragons like every other weekend. So yeah, yeah, all right. I I don't want to get too involved in that, but yes. So, so I am the guy who is playing Dungeons and Dragons every weekend, and I'm not out stealing cocaine for parties. Mind you, though, I am familiar with the concept of a party, which in my world usually involves four people, somebody's using magic, and demons are being fought or whatever. But I am familiar with the concept. And so one of the other reasons why I thought this was so ridiculous, and I have to give you some context to this, is that... Um, Basically, who thought I stole cocaine, which is probably one of the things that you guys are wondering, is that the person who made the decisions for the graduate school actually thought that I was the one who stole cocaine. And the reason why he thought that was because Dr. Janice, the lab that I had worked in over a summer, had actually accused me of stealing cocaine from the lab. So for context, Dr. Janice's lab, they did a lot of really interesting experiments on how cocaine and marijuana affected the brains of rats. So they were trying to sort of model what teenagers might do at a party and see how it affected their cognitive processes and development. However, I, along with another undergrad, white dude from Staten Island, were hired on a separate project to figure out how novel experiences could enrich the brain and possibly make rat moms better parents. And so we were not anywhere near the cocaine. The cocaine was locked up in a freezer. We never had access to it. And I don't even think he and I ever even saw the cocaine. But that did not prevent these accusations from being lobbed my way. so one of the other reasons that you guys have to know that the reason why I thought this was absolutely ridiculous was because they noticed the difference between my work ethic and his work ethic. So um, I was actually given a $1,000 check at the end of the summer rotation, which he and I did the same exact amount of time in, um, because I had done more work than he had on this project. I was also asked to give a presentation solely to the clinicians about all the research that we had done on the project. Uh, But for some reason, this wasn't enough to allay the concerns. So he and I, same amount of time. Um, I did more work. The only real difference is, you know, he was white and I was black. Um, And so I'm sure you guys are all thinking, because I was thinking it too, like, you know, was this racist? And I'm going to tell you right now, I I really don't think it was racist, um, to be fair. Um, 
but I do think that it was prejudice. I don't think there was an intentional racism because honestly, like if anybody in that lab had like a concerted idea in order to keep me back in some way, shape or form, I don't even think they would have accepted me into the lab. Um, but I do think there was prejudice involved, whether or not it was because I was young and black or whatever the fact is that I may never know, I was actually stripped of an opportunity. And so, Basically, I felt powerless because nobody came to me and asked me for my side of the story. I felt powerless because prejudice in these situations acts in such an insidious way where you kind of have to be a lawyer who is omnipotent and, know, and has all of the evidence at the ready in order to prove to all of your accusers that you didn't do this. But most of all, I felt powerless because even in the minds of scientists, the most likely explanation was glossed over to rush to my guilt, which was that in light of the uncommon amount of rat deaths they were having that year, somebody was probably just giving the rats too much cocaine because they sucked at math or measuring. Yeah. So the story isn't all bad. Um, at the end of the day, I did get my power back because there was a rush of confidence and support that I felt from Dr. Balboa because he was just as angry as I was about this situation. And furthermore, he even pushed me to apply to programs even though, or accept the exceptions from other programs, even though I was dead set on waiting to hear back from that institution. And luckily, thanks to him, I did end up going to graduate school and I graduated uh, in August, um, and I got my PhD in neuroscience, which was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And since my time in graduate school, or during my time in graduate school, I actually got a number of different awards for research. I also got an award that you guys heard about for science communication from NASA, and I did a bunch of other amazing things. But honestly, at the end of the day, from all the experiences that I had, like I really learned from Dr. Balboa that it's not actually the research that makes a good researcher, but it's the emotional support and confidence you provide to that researcher along the way. Thank you. was Lyle Tomlinson. Lyle is a Brooklyn native and a postdoctoral researcher and program coordinator at Stony Brook University. He won the 2014 NASA FameLab Science Communication Competition and became the international final runner-up. In addition to making complex information understandable, he has a growing interest in science policy. And outside of his work and career passions, he seems to harbor an odd obsession with sprinkles. Hey man, I can relate. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon and me, Aaron Barker, as well as Paul Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to AGU and Caveat for hosting these shows and to good mentors. Y'all are hard to find. Thanks for listening. <laughs>